0: Now here is your host.
1: What's up everybody, Jensen Cummings here. Thanks for tuning in. Today I'm talking with Andrew Parr, founder and chief advisor of Angry Olive Consulting in Denver, Colorado since 2011. Andrew started his career at the age of 15, Buster Dishwasher, the story we all know pretty well, in Milwaukee where he was born and raised. He is a cheesehead through and through Packers fan. And one of the interesting facts that, that he let me know was he's only been to Lambeau Field once, and this was just last year. Andrew, what was it like making that pilgrimage?
0: And especially was, after so
1: many years.
0: It, it was it was insane. And people, people are shocked when they hear that about me. But what a lot of people don't remember is that there was a stretch of time where the Packers played three out of their eight home games per season at old Milwaukee County Stadium. And so it wasn't as necessary to make the voyage up to Green Bay because, you know, I, I could see the Packers in my in my own backyard. But I have to tell you, uh, you know, this has to be similar to The experience of a Red Sox fan walking into that main gate of Fenway for the first time where you walk out of the tunnel and you see the green grass and the green monster. Um, I took advantage of the opportunity to see the Packers Hall of Fame do the stadium tour. And I was literally weepy the entire time I was walking through the stadium. It was unreal.
1: That's beautiful. That very much reminds me of, you know, Rudy where it's just like that that level of emotional response is really, really great. So you did get to see the, the Packers growing up. Uh, that's good to hear. And this leads right into something very interesting about you. I always am interested in what the food staples of people in the industry, what are they always noshing on at home? And you had secret stadium sauce, which I had never heard of. And clearly being at Miller Park was where this – this was found and and became a part of your uh your regular diet tell us about secret stadium sauce that now we are all going to be envious of and try to get our hands on
0: so secret stadium sauce is not barbecue sauce and it is not ketchup but it is it is just secret stadium sauce and it was created by Midwest Sports Service, which I believe is now just Sports Service, and it was served at County Stadium, at Miller Park, and it still is. And uh, you know, uh, shameless plug—it's available on uh, Amazon if you're curious and you want to taste it. But the uh, the proper way to utilize it is to heat it up in a saucepan, and then once you're done grilling your brats. You uh, give them a bath in secret stadium sauce. Leave them in there for as long as you want. Let them uh, be coated with this goodness and then uh, pull it out of the dunk and onto your bun and you're ready to go. But as far as I'm concerned, it is the only way to eat abroad.
1: All right, we're going to have to do this this football season because I am intrigued. And it reminds me a little bit of, of how regionally there's fry sauce. There's all these different versions of its barbecue sauce and ketchup. It's mayonnaise and honey mustard together. It's honey mustard and barbecue sauce. These different combinations that you see in different parts of the country. Uh, I like the heating up and then dunking the broth in it. So it almost seems like dual purpose. You can cold dip it or you can slather. Multifunctional sauces are always the best. So I love yeah, it. Glad to hear. It's like to play a little best served on icebreaker game, a fun little way to have me be able to do a little bit of research on my guests and geek out a little bit and have people have just a fun little playful learning lesson. And when I read secret stadium sauce, it took me down this whole rabbit hole. I was like, what else do stadiums across the country have? So we're going to play a little game called up the Gut." up the gut for five yards. Here is what we're playing. We're going to talk about some iconic dishes from football team stadiums around the country. And, Andrew, you are going to pick some winners. Now, I'm kind of setting you up to not be making friends with fans of these teams, but it still <laughs> sounded like a lot of fun to me. And since you are a diet cheese head anyway, a Packers fan, you know, you've got to have some trash-talking rights as it is. Am I right? Yeah,
0: Absolutely. And You know, i got to tell you, not to throw dirt on your California uh, roots, but a Dodger dog is potentially one of the worst stadium foods I've ever eaten in my life.
1: I could, I could not agree more. We, we, are not, we are not hitting a home run when it comes to the culinary mecca of Stadium. so it will not be included in the roundup today because I didn't want to set myself up to just lose again. We've had enough years of heartbreaking losses in the playoffs. We don't need any more. So uh, I don't know why there isn't better uh, tacos at that stadium. I'm going to have to talk to somebody about that being in Los Angeles, but I digress. Let's talk about some – really unique dishes coming from across the country and i love how regionally these are and you hear them i was almost going to have you guess what team this dish was coming from just because oh that would
0: be fun too
1: a couple of them like go yep i know exactly where that's coming from so we're going to pit two teams against each other like i said and we're going to start off with a team in California doing a much better job than the Los Angeles Dodgers, the San Francisco 49ers have a Dungeness crab pretzel, soft pretzel roll stuffed with tons of Dungeness crab, aioli, Dijon, and a little bit of chive. Super classic, super simple. Going up against the Kansas City Chief. Now, I figured they would have just barbecue all over the place but they're actually known for an interesting the inferno chicken sandwich which is all kinds of spicy fried chicken sandwich with carolina reaper mayo and the hottest chili pepper it's got jalapenos pepper jack cheese buffalo sauce so if you're putting up a simple classic dungeons crab sandwich against the super spicy fried chicken sandwich who's winning that uh,
0: matchup well, much as I dislike the 49ers, I have to go with the Dungeness Crab pretzel.
1: Give us the why. I mean, that's tough for you, picking the 49ers, especially after the, this past game. So, so talk to me about that. What is about Dungeness Crab that's, uh, that's allowing the Green Bay Packers fans to pick the
0: 49ers <laughs> in this one instance? Well – Let's say that I'm going to pick the 49ers chef, not the 49ers. There you go. <laughs> but uh, I think the why is, you know, um, having spent some time on both coasts, and, um, you know, we've got some people that deliver killer food here in Denver, but to know that you can get some fresh seafood right on the ocean, I, I think that's the that's what tips it.
1: Yeah, I get you get a sense of place, I think, thinking of – Dungeness Crab in San Francisco it just clicks. Yeah, I am with you there. Alright, next we're going to move to a matchup against the Redskins and the Browns. The Washington Redskins have a dish called the Pit Bull. It is a beef hot dog with sliced pit beef, jardiner, and a little bit of horseradish mustard. Going up against the Cleveland Browns, their Red Zone brat. A beer brat, I know, close to your heart. Caraway right. kraut, pickles, and spicy mustard. Who's coming out on top here?
0: Well, you know, all of my friends in the great state of Ohio, and particularly from Cleveland, are going to be unhappy with me. But I'm, I'm picking, I'm picking the Redskins on this one. And yeah, just a fan of the
1: the the beef dog over the beer brat,
0: huh? Well. I feel as though, one, nobody can do a beer brat better than a Wisconsinite, so trying to uh, masquerade in uh, Cleveland doing that's a bad call, and two, anything that's got horseradish in it has my vote.
1: Understood. A little home cooking there. If it's a beer brat, it's got to be in Green Bay. Understood. That one is actually interesting because it's actually uh, acclaimed Chef Michael Smith. Michael, nope. I messed up his name. Michael Simon? Michael Simon, oh man, his people are going to come <laughs> after me. Michael Simon, put that together for them. So Cleveland Browns are, are, are trying to play a major league when it comes to bringing in chefs. I thought that was super interesting. Absolutely. All right. Finally, we're going to do a little dessert. And I didn't know that dessert was a thing besides, you know, Cracker Jacks at the ballpark. But the Detroit Lions versus the Buffalo Bills, the Detroit Lions have their dessert nachos. The last thing I expected to hear from – the Motor City, and these are cinnamon-dusted chips with smoked chocolate cherry Nutella sauce and chocolate-covered Michigan cherries. They're getting after it. It's nice. that uber-stoner food here. And <laughs> the Bills do a, a, a fried PB&J sandwich, hand-dipped, fried, crustless PB&J. They're very specific about that designation. On a stick with powdered sugar. Which of these two stoner food dishes is coming out victorious
0: you know I, I think i have to go with uh the buffalo bills fried pb and j crustless on a stick uh, you know i think that if the lions had gone with a sopapilla pia instead of a chip that might have won it for me but I, i'm going with the bills on this one.
1: Oh yeah interesting interesting I think anything on a stick is pretty much going to win when you're at the ballpark. It makes you feel like you're at a carnival. I am with you. That was a fun little game, super goofy, and we learned a little bit about some iconic dishes in this game of Up the the Gut. All right, so we're going to talk in a little bit different format than usual. Usually, we're talking about some of the first people that sparked inspiration, and we're talking about some people in those pivotal moments, those formative years, and then somebody who's current. But you and I talked about, we wanted to really spend our time focused on one person, that person being Jeffrey Parr, your brother, who I want to just frame this for everybody who's listening. Uh, Jeff Parr passed away far, far too young and was a giant in our industry. Uh, He had a big impact on a lot of us. Me personally, we spent... A couple of years working together when he was the general manager of Tag Restaurants, and I was the chef to cuisine, and we stayed connected for years after that. And I remember, I remember a lot of things about Jeff. His energy was always just dynamic. He uh, came up as a chef, so he just understood how to speak multiple languages from the guest language to front of house to back of house. And there's one specific ideology that he instilled. I still talk about today and he talked about internal and external guests and I think Andrew and I will dig into this a little bit but what that always meant to me was it's as important to understand the needs and challenges and focus on your internal guests your employees as it was your external guests and in hospitality we sometimes beat ourselves up and our team up at the expense of being able to be the best in hospitality for our guests. And I think the balance and understanding the ability to care about your employees will always translate to a better experience for your guests. And so just thinking about that paradigm shift was crucial. And so I always respected that and have kept that with me. So I'd love to hear from you, just being Jeff's brother, like what was, what was it like uh, as you guys grew up or as you guys started your careers, just a couple little nuggets for us of Jeff and then we could talk about a little bit the, the professional aspects of what he meant to you.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting, you know, as we were growing up, I mean, we, we, were, we were in a very tight knit family, um, my parents had met in high school. And uh, so, you know, the proverbial high school sweethearts get married. Um, Jeffrey and I are three years apart, uh, he being my little brother. I, for some reason, I never called him my younger brother. He was always my little brother. And, um, you know, we were close growing up, but we had very different interests. And I I think a lot of people that have, you know, firstborn, secondborn, you you tend to see that as kids grow up. And, uh, you know, we were, we were the kids that, you know, I was always a little bit bigger. I was always more than happy to pin down his shoulders and drop a loogie in his face and, you know, we would, we would wrestle back and forth. Um, but, you know, the, the brother the, stuff, brother right, stuff. Exactly. Total, total boy things, total brother stuff. And um, it was really when we each went away to school. Um, and it was very interesting because we grew up in a, in a neighborhood in a school system where the question was never, are you going to college? The question was, where are you going to college? And Jeffrey really broke the mold because he knew probably from the time he was 12 or 14 years old, that he wanted to be in food and beverage and hospitality. And all through high school, he he had worked in restaurants. So when other kids in our school district were going and looking at colleges, My dad was taking him on trips to, you know, the Culinary Institute in Johnson and Wales and having very different types of college visits than everybody was. And by the time uh, he was graduating from the CIA in Hyde Park and I was uh, graduating from law school in in Minnesota, um, you know, as adults, we started to develop an exceptionally deep friendship that went. You know well beyond brotherhood
1: yeah so you worked in restaurants but it was really jeff who had a singular focus on the restaurants you're going into the law side but was there always this man he is so happy in the restaurant side for you as a high school job when did that transition to say hey maybe he was onto to something start to to creep in your mind
0: you know, you're right. For me, for me, it was always a means to an end. And so whether it was, you know, junior high, high school, college, law school, you know, I was supporting myself and helping to pay for my tuition. And it provided me, uh, like for a lot of people, the flexibility that I needed to be able to tackle my studies and, and earn a living at the same time. Um, And it was, you know, listening to the stories that Jeffrey would tell me about his educational pursuits and, you know, how much he hated being in sanitation class. And all he wanted to do was be able to pull out his knives and start cooking. And especially listening to his adventures during off times in school or when he would do his externship and, um Really starting to understand the friendships that he was making, the people that he was meeting, the camaraderie that he was developing, and the experiences that he was having from that very early age. Where, you know, I still think that undergrad is great for, for people that want to pursue that type of education. And in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a socialization as much as it is uh, an education. But I think that the the socialization that Jeffrey went through was uh, much more accelerated than what you would at a typical undergraduate path, and that was very always very intriguing to me.
1: Yeah, and he was he was doing cool shit. You could just see his energy. Uh, if people just knew Jeff, his energy was so so high, and and it rubs off on people. And so I'm sure you're you're telling stories about you know, being knee deep in textbooks that he's telling stories about cooking and tasting delicious things that, <laughs> that had to be an interesting dynamic between the two of you. And he's the younger brother. So of course you're always, you know, thinking that he's trying to excel and, and reach your heights. And you're saying, damn, I, I'm really digging what you're into.
0: Absolutely. There was, you know, there was definitely a time, you know, and, and I think everybody that, that knew Jeffrey knew, how inclusive he was in in his life and his experiences and the day-to-day but there was definitely a time where i thought wow my little brother has surpassed me in his you know his pursuit of excellence or or his professional day-to-day and um you know we were competitive but um we also shared an awful lot and so He was never that person that was like, aha, I'm three years younger and I've passed you. It was like, come along for the ride because this is great and it should be great for everybody.
1: Yeah. And so tell me then your, your arc then from going from law school, being in Minnesota, he's at Hyde Park. And then when did it actually come to fruition that you moved towards the hospitality industry as a career path?
0: So I had graduated from law school and moved to Arizona because, you know, they have spring training there and I'm just as big a baseball fan as I am a football fan. And the Brewers spring training was there. And I had one friend that I knew that had moved there who I had worked with at a restaurant in Minnesota while I was going to school. And uh, she got a job as a manager at an Applebee's franchise uh, group, and they were opening a new restaurant, and I joined the new opening team as a server and a, as an expediter, and I had been there for a few months, and I sat for the bar exam in Arizona. I uh, missed passing by six points. With the bar exam, you're able to submit it for regrading, and the bar examiners were kind enough to take six more points away from me And so uh, my district manager found out and he came up to me and he said, hey, you know, I'm really sorry to hear that, but we think that you would be an amazing part of our management team. Have you ever considered restaurant management as a professional career? And I honestly had not at that point. I, I knew that I didn't necessarily want to practice law but I didn't know exactly where my career path was gonna take me. So after a few discussions and conversations, we, we s- structured our conversation and I went into the training program and, and that was the beginning for me of, of what ended up, uh, you know, being my ongoing professional aspiration.
1: Love hearing that. so many uh, accidental culinary professionals and, uh, and then you get hooked.
0: Right, industry
1: industry gets its claws into you okay so tell me then uh when and where did did you and jeff overlap or pass pass cross paths let me try that again cross paths uh professionally
0: so in 99 jeffrey was working for levy restaurants on the entertainment side and he had opened up a number of sports venues for them and they brought him out to Denver to be the opening executive chef of the Pepsi Center. And after he had been here for a few months, he got on the phone and he called me and he said, hey man, you you gotta get to Denver. Denver is unbelievable. The lifestyle here is fantastic. You gotta get here. So fast forward 10 years later, I finally had the opportunity to come to Denver And I became the director of food and beverage at the Golden Hotel in Golden, Colorado, because everybody says, where's the Golden Hotel? And um, he had been working with his consulting group on revamping the entire food and beverage program. And uh, they had a challenge with leadership. And so as he was working through the last three months of that process, I came on board as the director of food and beverage to carry forward all of the planning and uh, process that he had put into place for his client.
1: Okay. So Denver is where it all kind of happened and you're still here in Denver. So that definitely laid the groundwork for a big part of the future of, of your life. Now, Jeff and I then worked together, would have been in the next phase of his career. I believe he started at TAG in 2010 when we were about a year and a half, maybe two years in, and I think that's when we first met. So what was it like then seeing his transition from a lot of, maybe more corporate and large, large scale, then he's kind of moved out of the culinary side, more into front of house and operational management, and then coming to a small kind of startup uh, restaurant. So what did that look like from your perspective?
0: You know, it's interesting, I I think, a lot of the changes that Jeffrey made in his career, starting in 2009, 2010, getting out of that highly corporate regimented environment, um, was really based on the fact that uh, on uh, March 1st of 2010, my oldest nephew Brooklyn was born. And so, Jeffrey really wanted to start pursuing professional avenues that would allow him more freedom and flexibility to um, really have a two pronged focus in his life. One was obviously considering the prof- continuing the professional excellence that he had achieved, and the other was really turning the page to this new focus of, of family and being able to spend as much time with Libby and Brooklyn uh, and being a part of his life as well.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now on the flip side, new restaurant startup means not much freedom of time for sure, but building something uh, more family oriented definitely makes a lot of sense where you're building a team and you're growing a family and those things are they're very like-minded, even though sometimes one draws away from the other, which is which can be challenging. And so you're then continuing to work on the, the F b side and, and management side. Uh, Jeff is kind of in tag. Uh, and then 2011 into 12, I believe is then when you started and went out on your own and he kind of went out of his own was consulting with Lee Sullivan and some of that. So how did then both of you come all the way full circle and you're kind of in the same space and starting thinking about consulting and, and being more on the contract side and working with clients. What was that transition like between the two of you?
0: Yeah. Well, so what happened was I, I had continued my career working for other people. Um, I had, um, I, I worked, sorry, I, I was at the Golden Hotel, I opened up uh, Crave Dessert Bar and Lounge in the Spire building, and, and that was a another tag team where uh, they were a client of Jeffrey's on the consulting side, and, and I came in and ran their operations on a contract basis for six months, and that's when uh, you and I were working across the hallway from each other while you were at Rowe.
1: That's right, with Daryl and Alan there at Crave. I love, yep. love those guys.
0: And I went from there to Le Grand Bistro and Oyster Bar and had the opportunity to work with Robert Thompson and his team over there, and um, went from there out to Portland for a little while, where I opened up Punch Bowl. and during the course of all of these experiences, Jeffrey would have various projects, a lot of them having you know, a heavy human resources component. And he was like, listen, this is the shit that I don't want to do. He's like, I want to build menus. I want to work directly with clients. I don't want to deal with the human resources side of this. And you are extremely detail-oriented and you dot the I's and you cross the T's. And and I'd love to pull you into some of these projects. So I was able to, you know, work my full-time job and also get my feet wet on a limited consulting basis, where he would pull me in on various projects. And then when I was at Punchbowl in Portland, the, uh, during December of 2013, that was uh, when Jeffrey passed away. And so I immediately came back to Denver uh, because I was obviously very close with, with Libby in Brooklyn, uh, close to the point that for a number of years, we actually all lived together in the same house. And so I came back, and um, I sat down with Robert, and Robert and the team were exceptionally gracious. You know, Michael, my boss, picked me up at the airport when I came back to town. Um, LeGrand was gracious enough to to host a reception after Jeffrey's funeral and shut down for a few hours. Um, and after the smoke cleared a little bit, I sat down with Robert and he said, all right, so, you know, when do you think you're going to be ready to go back to Portland? And I said, listen, I'm, I'm going to take, uh, four weeks of vacation time. Cause I haven't taken any vacation time, uh, since we've worked together yet. And then I would like to take 30 days unpaid because, uh, Ari, my second nephew, was born three weeks after Jeffrey passed, and Libby had a cesarean with Brooklyn, and so we knew that was going to be the case with Ari, and I just wanted to be around and available to be able to take care of of the family, and so as things transpired, I, you know, I wanted to make sure that Robert had the room to move forward with succession planning for his businesses, because Austin was on the horizon at that point, and uh, Alan and Daryl came to me and said, hey, listen, we've got a, another project that we would love for you to be involved in on the consulting side. And it was really at that point that I made the decision that, uh, you know, this is, this is my time where I'm going to get out from underneath the uh, corporate operations and, uh, and move forward. And, and really that's when Angry Olive uh became my full-time professional focus
1: and that's i mean that's heavy stuff that's a, a big life upheaval and you yeah, had to take care of libby and brooklyn uh jumping in the family i mean i'm guessing there was no hesitation on your part but just talk to me about that a little bit like what's the what's that emotional turmoil like that that's gotta be hard on the career hard on the, the personal life and to jump in but what was that what was that like
0: it was, uh, you know, to me, like sometimes people will say to me, well, how did you make that decision? And to me, there, there was no decision and it wasn't a matter of what's the right choice. Cause there was no decision. There was no choice. It was just what I was going to do. And it wasn't a matter of doing the right thing. It was, you know, it, it was the way that my parents raised me. And it was the relationship that I had with Jeffrey and Libby and it was just what needed to be done, so it, it's what I did, and yeah, it was. I mean, it was emotionally challenging. It was professionally challenging. Um, you know, my wife Jody and I had just met a few months before that, and, and I'm so exceptionally thankful that that year she came back to Denver with me for Thanksgiving and had the opportunity to meet Jeffrey and spend time with Jeffrey and Libby in Brooklyn, and. Uh, my dad had come into town. So, so we all got to hang out. Um, but, uh, it, yeah, it, it really did kind of change my career path and and my trajectory. And I think that, you know, day to day and year to year, we are the sum total of all of the experiences that we go through and the, the people that are part of those experiences as, as we take that path and, and, um, you know, I, I have absolutely no regrets. I, I think that it was if I had to do that all over again, I would do the exact same thing that I did. But I had a lot of people around us that loved us and supported us and and made sure that, that they were there for us too.
1: Yeah, that's powerful. That's absolutely powerful. And it clearly motivated you to to somewhat take up the mantle, you know, like he was so passionate about helping clients and focused on that. And you mentioned being very much more the uh, attention to detail and now you've expanded and you definitely, I can tell now, having uh, even crossed paths on a, a project with the Voice Box guys who opened here in Denver and I worked with them who then you knew from Portland. And taking on a new role and I could definitely feel the energy of Jeff. Now you kind of uh, are filling in uh, the void that, that was left there and our industry needs more of that. And I'm very interested then for you, how now you are carrying on Jeffrey's legacy in some way as a champion for this industry. And, you know, what are some of the the tidbits that you're trying to, to bring into the industry that you can definitely feel, yourself channeling Jeff?
0: Yeah, I think the, the biggest the biggest part is, we've touched on this a little bit, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it, is really, it's that human piece. And, and I think that, you know, one of the things for, for everybody that knew Jeffrey, you remember hearing him laugh. And that laugh, was so infectious and so disarming in, in an absolutely warm, loving, positive way. And anytime I'm banging my head against the wall, whether it be with a client or with a challenge that a client is going through with a vendor or, you know, the challenges that they go through with hiring a staff, all I have to do is take a step back and, and listen to Jeffrey laughing and it kind of resets everything, and and I think one of the things that he really was able to show me is that, you know, yes, a, a client has to understand that you can do what you say you're going to do for them, and then they have to trust that you can do what you say that you can do for them, and you have to know that this is somebody that you want to have a long-term relationship with because what we're doing is not in any way transactional. It's, it's very relationship driven. Um, and I think that really what I took away from that is understanding that not only are you providing a specific set of required technical skills, but the ability to really be a friend, a mentor, a teacher, and when necessary, the staff psychologist, Um, is a really big part of that people part of what needs to happen during these processes
1: yeah this is important stuff you're saying right now when you talk about the people the human elements the relationships these have always been paramount in this industry and they're a little bit in upheaval and and perhaps even turmoil right now i know that's a focus of your work with your clients is to really think about again circling all the way back to Jeff's statement internal and external guests and I wonder if you have a few little words of wisdom for us on on how you're trying to articulate that as you see the landscape shifting there's a groundswell right now I think long term there'll be a lot of positive things that come about from the restaurant industry reimagining the way that it positions itself what it means to be a part of a restaurant in the short term there's going to be some pain to that process we're seeing some of that in labor shortages and great restaurants closing things like that so talk to me about some of your vision for what happens next and how you're passing that information along to clients
0: well i i think that i think that we really have to look at it from a mutual respect perspective and that's not only in terms of you know employer employee but it's also peer-to-peer and you know I used to talk about you know 80s management style and that's you know broad sweeping generalization but you know back in the days when chefs and kitchen managers would throw knives and pots and pans across the kitchen at servers or other line cooks or dishwashers and or you know, if if you'd be in the middle of a gnarly shift and somebody would, you know, basically be like, fuck you to somebody else, and then the expectation is is that when you get out of the shit, you just get to walk up to somebody and be like, hey man, I'm I'm sorry, it was just the middle of the shit and you know, my bad. But what do you do to avoid that to the to begin with? Like how how can you how can you hire a staff that's not gonna tell somebody to take a long walk off of a short pier and just expect that that's gonna be excused. And I think a lot of what really needs to be done is understanding why do you want to open your concept in the first place? What is your motivation? Is your motivation because you just watch Goodfellas and you think it's really cool to own a restaurant and be the center of attention? Or is it because you found something that's really driving you some passion where, yeah, food and beverage is absolutely the vehicle to get this across and you have to be really good at what you do. But is it because you're opening up in a community that you're really rooted in and you want to bring back together and support the people in this community? And, and I think that if you look at that and understand what, you're basing everything on and, and what your passion is and getting your concept open, then you match your hiring to match your brand and match your values. And I know that you know, some of this sounds very Stephen Covey, seven habits type of stuff, but I've talked to a lot of people about what I consider the basics. And the basics are something that I was taught by another mentor of mine, Mark Feely back in the Applebee's days and there are just certain fundamental rights and wrongs. And, and I think that if you understand what those are and adhere to that operationally, and then you go out and you hire a team of people and you understand what motivates them. And I think one of the important things now is that, you know, if somebody leaves your restaurant because they can make 50 cents an hour more someplace else, it's not about the 50 cents an hour more, it's about the environment that you've created and you are no longer an employer of choice. If somebody is willing to leave over 50 cents an hour, the, the passion, um, the drive, the direction that you brought to your concept originally has probably disappeared and you need to get that back to be able to maintain and respect the employee base that you've brought on board.
1: That is, that is the truth, my friend that why has to be the North star because this is such a fast paced industry, such a a fast paced job at every level. And if you don't have that North star to keep you tethered, it's really, really easy to lose your way. And we see that a lot. And so I think that's valuable, valuable advice. I know that uh, Jeff would be that little, cackle laugh. I don't know how else to describe it. And his whole right. body scrunches up and he leans into you. I wish the listeners could see my face. But when you said that about his laugh, I was smiling the whole time and, and imagining it. And, uh, and I think it, he'd be proud of the work that you're doing. And I think it's a valuable asset to have you working out here in the industry thinking differently. I think we need more of that. And so I want to leave us with a quote that you gave me that I think is really on point from General Norman Schwarzkopf. And it says, leadership is a potent combination of strategy and character. But if you must be without one, be without strategy. Tell me what that means to send us off uh, to fight another shift.
0: To me, it's really simple and it's really basic and it should be the foundation of everything. Because strategy, does and has to change all the time. So if for a heartbeat, you have to be without a strategy, it's fine, you'll find your way again. But everything you do has to be with the character that you and your team bring to the table. And if you're not a person of character, you're not gonna be successful in the long run.
1: Absolutely, it's that, once again, that North Star Now, I know you came across somebody very important in your career at a kind of a pivotal moment and want to spend some time talking about a mentor, an unsung hospitality hero, somebody that needs a little bit more recognition for their impact on you personally, and I'm sure countless others in the industry as a whole. Talk to us about your unsung hospitality hero, Mr. Mark Feely.
0: So Mark and I met Pretty early on in my management career, uh, because I was still at Applebee's at the time, which was my first management job ever, and I had just opened up a new unit in Prescott, Arizona, spent 18 months up there, and then it was time for me to get back down to Phoenix, and they placed me as a kitchen manager in the unit that Mark was the general manager of and um, I had been through a pretty good number of experiences with the company at this point but I had not yet been a kitchen manager so to have someone like Mark take me under his wing help me understand how to manage a crew in the kitchen and in a highly corporate environment like we had uh, was really really important for me.
1: So he laid some foundation there but then I know you crossed paths again and that really kind of catapulted you in a a significant way. So talk about just a little bit about what that was. And then I really want to dig into the mentorship. It clearly is important to you and something that you've tried to emulate. So just really quickly, where did you guys then cross paths again? And then let's talk about Mark as as a leader, as a mentor, as a guiding figure.
0: Sure. So, uh, At one point, we had both left the company, and Mark moved to Connecticut to take a position as a regional manager with a steakhouse concept called Dakota Steak and Seafood. And I had come home from work one day and found a voice message on, yes, at that time, my answering machine. And it was from Mark, and uh, he said that he was having some problems with an Excel spreadsheet and could I help him out? And so I called him up and I said, what's going on? How can I help you? And he said, Hey, listen, I, I you know, as well as I do, I'm not doing anything with Excel at all. I wanted to uh, get you on the phone because I want to talk to you about moving out to Connecticut and taking over one of my restaurants for me. Um, so push came to shove and about uh, two or three months later, I was out in Connecticut running a steakhouse.
1: I like that moment. That was uh a transformative moment where the student became the teacher. is like, oh, he needs something for me. And I think also whenever a mentor is willing to then also ask for help from the mentee, it creates a bond because then it's not a one-way street. We start to think about the needs across the aisle versus just being dictated to. to. So I'm very fascinated with that. So let's dig a little bit more into Mark. What was some of the, the wisdoms that he imparted onto you that you kind of, stuck with over the years?
0: Well, I think with Mark, one of the really key factors was, and especially at that time, a lot of people weren't leading from the perspective that he was and still does. And his leadership model is a model called servant leadership, whereby the person in charge of the organization, the person in charge of leading the team actually views themselves as the person who is most responsible for serving the people that are actually in their employ. And it creates a significant amount of trust and camaraderie to know that, you know, Mark's never been that guy that says, hey, do this for me. Mark's always been the guy that said, hey, you know, if you could do me a favor and make this happen. And when you're approached like that, it's like a no brainer. I mean, first of all, everybody that works for him loves him. And then second of all, when when you know that he's there to back you up and to take care of you and to aid in your development. Now, you know, does that mean that his job gets easier because the people that are bought into that developmental model get better? Of course it does. And, and that's kind of the way it should be. Um, and, and we've always kind of looked at it from the, from the point of view of um, the best way to get promoted is to make sure that the people that surround you are being developed so they can push you up and out to the next position that you want to attain.
1: Yeah, that kind of leadership, right? A boss, people work for a boss but a leader works for his people. So I think it's just flipping that script a little bit, I think has a lot of value. Have you taken that with you and tried to apply that throughout? Because that's challenging also. You know, sometimes it feels like you do need to bark orders just to get shit done and, and get through it and hit numbers and all those things. Like so much of the minutiae and the, the chumming within the industry is pushing you to, to be a boss.
0: Well, What is it that I, I
1: keeps you th- as a leader?
0: I think a lot of it is, you know, and, and I was very early in my career, I, I received a lot of Stephen Covey style coaching and development. Um, and one of the things that I take away from that is the conversation about making deposits in the emotional bank account. And so as you're working with other people, And as you're contributing to their growth and their success, every time you help them reach a new level, obtain a new skill, feel a success within the course of a shift or a service, you are making a deposit into their emotional bank account. And the more deposits you make, the less harmful it is when you need to make a withdrawal. Right? So, and it's kind of like that, are you building a bridge to burn it down or are you building a bridge to walk over it? And I think that if you put the two together, you have to, you can understand at that point that if there comes a moment where you need to bark to lead, that you can do that because you've built up the trust and the relationship with those people by making enough positive deposits and that they know that you're going to continue to support them that way.
1: I like that that's very practical also because it is highfalutin and you are trying to be a a leader and there's a lot of psychology behind kind of that statement. But I also like that it is somewhat practical that there, there are multiple transactions taking place over a period of time and that your awareness of the value of those transactions and their accumulation allows you the opportunity to view the moment and the individual and make a call on the way you're going to interact in that moment i like that a lot because sometimes if things are just too ethereal too abstract it's hard Mm -hmm. to understand how to do that in practice again when you're getting your head kicked in in the industry and so that's really some of the stuff that you learned early on but mark just continued to crystallize for you and and take with you are there any other little nuggets any little Markisms that we got to know about
0: uh you know, Mark. Uh, Mark's a really big sports guy and he grew up in the Northeast. So um, he's told multiple stories about uh, a version, an era of Boston Bruins that were called the Lunch Pail Kids. And uh, a lot of those stories are centered around hard work and, and, and teamwork and coming together as a group of people where the sum is always greater than the value of the parts individually, Uh, you know, and and it's just, now that I've known Mark for about 20 years, when you see him working with other people, it's kind of like, oh, this is the story he's going to break out now, this is the one he's going to bring out in this situation, but definitely a lot of uh, sports analogies with Mark.
1: That is great, so this is exactly what leadership, what mentorship, what that camaraderie means, is that you can start to anticipate. You kind of roll your eyes a little bit. Oh, here comes another story, but they're memorable and they stick with you. And I think that's a, an important thing. Uh, I always called them fortune cookies and people were like, great, here comes another fortune cookie from Jensen." <laughs> I was like, but you remember them and that's the important thing. And then years later, they'll hit you up and say, yeah, I kind of say that thing that you used to say. I was like, I love it. Take it, Exactly. It your own. Originality is remembering the things that you heard And forgetting where you heard them. That's that's it. I love I love I love that you can take them and make them your own. That is great. I'm looking forward to talking to Mark and getting some more pearls of wisdom as you have throughout your career. Now Andrew gave us some really great insights and was very gracious to be able to talk about his brother Jeffrey Parr, who's had such an enormous impact on him, myself, and so many in the industry. And he also was really great to shout out a mentor of his that really catapulted his career and have stayed in touch. So I'm very excited to have Mark Feely on the line. Mark, thanks for talking with us.
2: Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. And uh, it's great to be here.
1: So he talked a little bit about kind of those, uh, those pivotal moments in his career where you two overlapped and you brought him in on a project out east after your time in Arizona. So we're gonna get into that a little bit, but I wanted to just touch on your origin story a little bit. So tell us where you were born, and maybe get into kind of your first job in the industry that got you into this this crazy line of work.
2: Okay, well, uh, born nineteen sixty. I know means I'm old, right? So uh, back in Worcester, Massachusetts, out in uh, New England there, and uh, I'm one of uh, one of seven kids, and grew up in the city, city kid, and. Uh, First job really was just uh, Friendly's ice cream. I'm not quite sure if uh, anybody knows what that is other than New England, I would imagine. But, you know, like a lot of people uh, throughout the years and, you know, I I started doing dishes like anybody else did, growing through the industry with the industry. And uh, from there, just waiting on guests and and so on. So that was my first intro, you know, back in uh, I was uh, 16 years old.
1: Nice. You you are seasoned. That's the the correct terminology for <laughs> whence whence you came and when you were born. So, what are you uh, working on currently? What's what's the industry hold for you these days?
2: Okay. Well, uh, two years ago, I left a big corporate world and uh, initially just to take maybe four or five months off, and decided to have this uh, vision of starting my own company, uh, which I did. Uh, it's called IMI Vision Concepts, and uh, really, it's kind of the biggest thing is giving back to, uh, organizations and schools and from all the lessons learned and, uh, failures and successes and along the way, along for, uh, 35, 40 years. So, uh, it took me about, in the meantime, it took me about eight months really to, uh, I wanted to make it four months, four and a half months, uh, before I got back into some kind of, I, you're going to laugh at this when I say part-time, but I took a job with a uh, Kona, Kona Grill out here in uh, Arizona. And, uh, the only company willing to let me work forty hours a week or forty-two hours a week—I call that part-time, Jensen.
1: That—that so. that is in the restaurant industry. That's pretty much part-time, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely.
2: I Absolutely. hear that. Well,
1: well, let's get into some of those lessons learned, and what what it really was about you and Andrew that sparked, kind of, in the beginning. I think the listeners are really always interested in in how those relationships begin where those opportunities for finding mentors or becoming mentors really crystallized. So what was that for you and Andrew in those days in Arizona and then coming out to the East coast,
2: you know, back in the days, uh, with, with Applebee's, uh, you know, many, many years ago, 20 plus years ago, um, I was in Mason, uh, and, uh, and, and Drew basically, uh, jumped on board with the store. And, uh, uh, as far as uh, part of our team, and it was, it, was, uh, it was amazing because of the fact that, uh, you know, building teams uh, for many years and so on and so forth. And uh, just the, the initial, you know, listen to him speak, you know, detailed, meticulous, the um, way he talked about people the purposes that, uh, that, you know, why he's in the business and so on, even with a law degree, we always get a kick out of that. I mean, with a law degree and, uh, he always made reference to that. And I said, what the hell are you doing in this business? And, uh, and so, uh, good listener, you know, and so we had a lot of the same qualities, qualities, a lot of the same, um, ideals, uh, values and so on. Uh, like I said, well-spoken, I'm extremely articulate. And one of the biggest things was he had a great work ethic. And so, uh, you 're a veteran in the business too, and so finding a lot of those qualities or seeing a lot of those qualities as someone on your team um, it was it was just a, uh, it was amazing it was an amazing uh, connection uh, from there so uh, we get a chance to uh, hone our skills together um, and then eventually, after the Applebee days and working together, uh, he went off to San Diego. I shot across the country a couple of times with different organizations and just, you know, sometimes we lost touch here and there in a busy world. And uh, eventually when I ended up in Connecticut. Uh, uh, yeah. There was
1: talk of a, of a spreadsheet, the spreadsheet seemed like it was the catalyst for this. And he had said that you reached out to him, said that, no, you're the master of these damn spreadsheets, help me out with this. And that kind of was the, the moment that there was a little bit of a connection that then, eventually suck him full bore into kind of what you're doing so talk about that because I'm I'm interested because it seemed like a uh a student becomes the teacher moment where there was some specialty that he had that that uh, said you know what let's let's bring Andrew in let's bring Drew in and then that led to so much more
2: you know it really was I mean he has always been I said a few minutes earlier just very articulate just smart. The metric piece uh, back in the day, it wasn't, so, it wasn't nearly what it is today, of course, in any aspect either sports or business. And so um, he just had it down right after the bat. I mean, when we were, when we were uh, pulling apart P mixes and uh, back in the day when it really wasn't the thing to do, um, well, at least that uh, not, not as popular. And he had it down. He had all these systems and all these uh, metrics and programs. And so it was a again another no-brainer to say, hey man, listen, uh, I'm working through a couple things here with the company. I was uh, an area director in Connecticut, and uh, and I'm like, wait a second here. I know the I know the guy. I know the guy I need to bring out there, and uh, you know, because he had it all wrapped into one big package. And so uh, he's been fantastic as far as helping me with a lot of those programs. Uh, uh, his like i said his direction with that i was certainly the student when it came to that uh, he could put together programs uh that would take me probably jensen uh weeks if not months honestly so it was it was huge it was huge it
1: it's vital vital we we're such artists sometimes to be Absolutely. practitioners and have that balance i think is really key and have aces in their places i love to hear that and knowing andrew i i completely understand everything you're saying to a T. Now, he mentioned to us, you know, we, wa- we always like a couple of the isms of, of mentors, of, of the, the goofy th- sayings that they have, or the ways they go about coaching or leading or teaching. And so you said you're a big sports guy. And I'd love to just have you just pontificate a little bit on some of the the thesis that you have within the industry any of the, the quips and sayings that you may have. And, and let's maybe rap about those for a minute because I am the same way uh, to the nth degree. So I love he- hearing a fellow like-minded wordsmith. Talk to me about some of the philosophies you have within the industry.
2: Oh boy, you know, um, I've had the opportunity to work with so many great organizations and typically to turn them around throughout the country. So to answer your question, you know, I really, every place that I went to, every organization I went to, I, I always had to come up with something different. Whether it's a basic, are you fired up today? Um, uh, you know, things like that. And, and um, God, it, it, you put me on the spot here a little bit here because every single location was always something different. But it was, but the piece was just coming into an organization, and and just understanding that culture what you're walking into right and understanding the the people think first that you know the obviously the servant leadership mentality piece but understanding that and so every location it was just I try to bring upon something different something goofy and uh I know I probably said some really stupid things because I have no problem laughing at myself and uh but one of the biggest ones uh, the team out here in Arizona initially with one of the organizations I caught them one day making fun of me so uh Every day I would walk into the, uh, the pre shift and say, you fired up? And uh, so one day one of my uh, servers uh, he didn't know I was walking around the corner. He was imitating not the way I actually was speaking, but also the way I was walking. And um, it was pretty funny just uh, making fun of me about uh, if that's what you're talking about, Jensen. You know, just really goofy stuff, fun stuff, but things to get him motivated, right? Thing to, thing to, to way to start to shift and, uh, and have some fun. Yeah, I love,
1: I love hearing that. Allowing yourself to be uh, poked fun at, I think is good. The thing that I always talk about is, is it's got to be memorable. And even if you make fun of it, that's the point. If it's memorable. And I I think that's, that's super valuable. The, uh, the one that we talked about with his, his brother, Jeffrey, that always stuck with me. he talked about internal and external guests and, and how much time we spend on our external guests and hospitality and turning that inward and spending as much time on our employees, you, you touched on culture, which I think is really relevant. What's something that's really palpable these, these days within the industry? Some project you're working on currently, some client that you have that you're really trying to deliver on a message as there's a huge groundswell of opportunity as well as challenges as the industry moves forward with new technology, with redefining culture and things of that nature.
2: Oh boy! Oh boy! You know there—you um, could almost—I could write a list here, as far as that goes. But one—one one of the biggest things that uh, my focus is right now, and starting with and starting my company, was just part of the giving back and 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 working more in two areas, working more with the kids. Because as you very well know, we have so much uh, experience. I work with thousands and thousands of employees, and I call them kids because they're all kids to me. And there is not a better time, I don't think, than now or a little bit. A couple of years ago, moving forward, anyways, to make an impact, the work ethic, um, especially uh, the attitude, you know, just the whole, and that's on the employee side. The biggest piece is working with the new managers and, and the younger managers, explaining what vision is, what planning is, and strategizing, goal setting, and uh, what is to be organized, and what is to be a leader. And um, I just think that a lot of those. A lot of those pieces are just—they're very broken. Um, look at our industry going back to the, uh, you know, the TGI Fridays and um, even Applebee's now and uh, Longhorns, Outback. I mean, they're either going out of business or there no one's up in guest counts. so, I think everything's just gone, gone away. It seems like. And so, to me, it's going back, and it's going to sound crazy, but going back to the basic fundamentals. In teaching and coaching, I love the correlation, Jensen, between the sports piece and the business piece, you know?
1: Yeah, redefining purpose is something that, that gets mentioned a lot in the show and talking about and what it means to then do whatever comes next because we are redefining culture across so many different industries. And I think for the restaurant industry, we have a huge opportunity or we can go the way of the taxi industry, you know, if we don't, absorb and adopt technology and new ideas when it comes to culture and things like that. So uh, are you seeing any uh, technologies that are being deployed that you see having a, a positive impact on culture that you're trying to implement and bring into the fabric of some of the people you're working with?
2: most of the technology that lasts X amount of years that, uh, that is relative. I can't say new, but certainly being used more often than not. Now you have your, um, uh, the higher volume restaurants. So again, not really new, but the headsets and the communication when you're having, you know, five, six, seven, uh, people manages, busers, hosts, um, essays hooked up on headsets to, uh, to increase the proficiency of the operation as far as that goes. The, the technology, the piece in the back of the house, the metrics, that only gets – I mean, we are thrown so much information now. It's, I think it's numbers overload where I think managers are just – some are just spending too much time in the office trying to figure it all out. And then others are so overwhelmed they spend no time at all. And, so, uh, and, and then, of course, the touchscreens, the, uh, the POS systems are getting more and more uh, you know, user-friendly over the, over the course of time. But those are the three areas, Jensen, I, I really, that I've used in the past ex, you know, two, three, four, five years. So.
1: yeah, I think that's really interesting because I was throwing technology out there, and I'm putting you on the spot a lot because you're, you're seasoned, as I mentioned, and just so uh, ingrained in kind of bringing on new thinking. So, so I love that and wanted to, to really highlight that. What you're talking about when you, when you mentioned we're getting so inundated with numbers, it's, it's a big thing that we're really focused on with what we're doing with this podcast is thinking about why and who over what and how. And so I'm interested in that dynamic. And I think you make a point to that. You say technology. However, if it's not about people first, then the technology is, is moot. Uh, talk about that a little bit more, as far as like how you're thinking about people first, even in the paradigm of technology and being an efficient operator.
2: you know great great question um, I would say oh more than a decade or so ago um, that that terminology servant leadership came up, and uh, back when I was with, uh, with a big organization and um and so, what is that servant leadership piece? What is it all about? Loving your people, taking care of your people. Bottom line, still still holding the people accountable, right? So, um, I always thought that, you know, when I when I went back and I can reflect on uh, my uh, days with Drew too, um, the fact that I th- I thought that we always did that. I thought that there was a, an important piece, important part of of who we were, and if we were going to be successful, you had to build your organization around your people. And so when you fast forward now to this day, um, that's where my passion is, because I think that people piece is kind of uh, not gone away at all, but certainly uh, it's the most important piece of anything. And uh, you build your business around your people, good people, hold them accountable, as you very well know. And uh, it really, it goes from there. I think the sky's the limit, right? The, the, The better team wins, not the better person, but the better team
1: could not agree more. Servant leadership is, is absolutely something that Drew mentioned and I think is really, really important. If we just think about, again, ourselves as servants, as stewards of hospitality, both mm-hmm. for, the, again, those internal and external guests, our opportunity to win is exponential as a team. Bring all those pieces back together. I love, love hearing that. Uh, thank you for bringing some seasoned wisdom to the conversation. I think it's really important for us to continue to evolve. And part of our evolution involves being able to learn from past histories, both the failures and the successes, as you mentioned. So I think this is a really great conversation. And everyone listening, I think, can glean just little nuggets. So Mark, really appreciate you. Keep on having vision for the industry. It's greatly appreciated.
2: Thanks, Jess. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast.
0: Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.